The topic I have for you this afternoon to edify your hearts with is entitled, Content to be a Christian. We're going to be basing this study out of 1 Timothy chapter 6, and the central thought is in the sixth verse, a beautiful, simple statement, godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, we will be looking at the entire chapter soon enough as we deal with the various thoughts that the Spirit, I believe, would minister to our hearts. And so I'm going to forego a reading of the text at this moment. But if it so happens that we would post this and you have the opportunity to hear this message again, I would highly suggest that you pause the hearing of it at this time and read the sixth chapter of 1 Timothy before continuing. I'm going to begin by making sure that there's a sufficient orientation for all of you and all of our hearers as it relates to this letter to Timothy. It is from Paul. He wrote this likely in between his second and third missionary journey, the date therefore being around 64 AD, and he writes it to his understudy, Timothy, who was a native of Lystra, but at the time of this letter, he is in Ephesus at Paul's direction. And when we think about Timothy, Timothy was brought into Paul's company during his second missionary journey, which spanned between 49 AD and 51 AD. And so now that we're at 64 AD, when this letter is being written to Timothy, we're some roughly 14 years after Timothy first began to walk with Paul. And Timothy is roughly 40 years old at this time. Now, Timothy is an interesting individual in the Bible. He is perhaps an encouraging instance of what might look like a third-generation Christian. Because we learn that his mother, Eunice, and his grandmother, Lois, are believers in Jesus Christ. But of course, it's not likely that the way this is playing out is that Timothy's grandmother, Lois, came into faith in Christ, and then she gave birth to Eunice, and then Eunice came into faith in Christ, and then she gave birth with her Gentile husband to Timothy, and Timothy came into the faith. So it's not transgenerational in that sense. That is to say, this isn't a third-generation believer. But, you know, before you get discouraged about that, by which I'm saying, you know, to hear about someone who's in the third generation and still walking with Jesus is very encouraging to our hearts for good reasons. But just comfort your heart with the reality, as has been said before, God has no grandchildren. And so rejoice in the fact that even if their conversions are relatively contemporaneous, it is still true that Timothy had a personal, very deep and genuine faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and had that beautiful fellowship with his grandmother and his mother. And so, if, for example, in the third verse of this epistle, chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, Paul says, I besought you, Timothy, to abide at Ephesus 
when I went into Macedonia. Some surmise that after Paul got out of his imprisonment, his first imprisonment, that he then traveled to Macedonia and wrote this letter from there. That's likely. When I went into Macedonia, I wanted you to stay in Ephesus, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no heterodidaskalane, using the infinitive, the infinitive as is in the text itself. That assumes, therefore, in order for Timothy to carry out that commission, it assumes that Timothy knows what is the original, what is the proper, what is the true doctrine. In order for Timothy to be able to oversee what is going on in Ephesus and to deal with anyone who is teaching another doctrine, he has to know what the true doctrine is. And this epistle is partly supplying Timothy with the breadth of knowledge that he needs in order to carry out that task. 1 Timothy is among what is known as the pastoral epistles. I want to say something about that idea. The 15th, 16th, and 17th books of the New Testament canon, all three of those books are known as pastoral epistles. 1 Timothy has six chapters. 2 Timothy has four chapters. Titus has three chapters. As a result, the sum of those chapters is 13 chapters. We have 13 chapters within our New Testament, within the category of pastoral epistles. What is involved with that idea? Well, they're written to Timothy and to Titus. Who are Timothy and Titus? Are they pastors? Well, we might quibble about the technical terminology here, but they are certainly ministers of God's Word tasked with overseeing God's work. And what I want you to understand here initially is that even though Timothy and Titus exercised legitimate ministerial authority within local churches, and they were there often on their own without Pauline oversight. They were the authority in those locations. They themselves were nonetheless subject to Paul's instruction. These are pastoral letters written by Paul to teach and instruct and guide those who we might call for our purposes especially, to sort of bring these points home, let's just call them pastors. Let's just call them ministers. And the principle that I believe this establishes is the principle of accountability. The principle of the need for all of us to be teachable. It establishes that though Titus would be left in Crete, or Timothy would be left in Ephesus, or Epaphroditus would go somewhere else and we could enlarge the list of names, yet all of these individuals had to be willing to listen to someone outside of them, someone who had more knowledge than they had, and it wasn't necessarily that they were obviously more knowledge, knowledgeable than them in everything, but dispositionally they needed to be taught, or I should say they needed to be teachable, 
the fact that this sort of thing occurred, I want to emphasize, first of all, as being very important. I think without making very straightforward argument at this time, more suggestively, this has something to do with arriving at contentment in Christianity. It is the understanding that we all need to be taught, that we're all accountable, that here we're looking at men who are called to be pastors and leaders and go to locations and exercise their authority, but they must disposition themselves in such a way that they will receive a letter from Paul telling them many things about how they are to conduct their own lives and what exactly they're supposed to do. Now, when we broaden this reflection, allow me just to remind you of a number of other biblical individuals. I could make this list as long as every single worthy individual in the entire Bible. But I will just give you some reminders about other men in ministry who needed to be receptive to correction and needed to be under the guidance of some sort of spiritual authority above them. That this is absolutely biblical and it's absolutely necessary in order for there to be contentment and health within the flock of God. So we'll take Moses as an example. In Numbers chapter 20, Moses was rebuked by God. God said to Moses, you did not sanctify me. Indeed, he says that both to Moses and to Aaron. Think of that. Aaron is the Lord's high priest. Moses is his prophet and his leader. These men are in charge of this relatively unruly group of people. And they are seeking to dispense their lives and their ministries as effectively as possible, but they cannot hide the fact, and God does not hide this sort of experience from the view of the congregation, the experience of being corrected by God. It's a very open happening, and when it occurs for the right reasons and by truly spiritual authority, it is completely healthy, and it is necessary for our contentment and growth. Joshua, in Joshua chapter 7, he was admonished by God. Essentially, God said, stop praying. Imagine that. I mean, I guess you do need some spiritual instruction sometimes from a more spiritual vantage point. And I understand that God is supplying the role in some of these situations, and that's perfectly fine. God does supply that role, but he also does it through his instruments, like Paul, and we'll give you some other examples here before we're through with this relatively short list, but it all comes from God ultimately, and that actually is the point, isn't it? That we're all under the lordship of Jesus Christ, and so we all must be teachable because we all have more to learn to be like our Lord. And so what I'm saying, you remember with Joshua, in between the battle of Jericho and the battle of Ai, they had this difficulty where they weren't being successful when they put the battle in array. And Joshua gets on his knees and he's bawling and wailing before the Lord. And I don't want to sound like I'm mocking it. No, he's really seeking God and he's doing what you would think you should do. And he is doing what you should do, really. You know what I mean? But sometimes God says, 
Prayer is not going to answer this because there's sin in the camp and nothing's going to change this until you deal with that sin. And so Joshua had to be open to a spiritual voice speaking into his life and saying, imagine this, stop praying. Prayer is not the answer for where you need to go to be stronger in the Lord. You need to attend to something more basic and sensible. Well, not that prayer isn't sensible, but I'm saying, I'm saying more basic and also it is sensible because there's sin in the camp. I mean, it makes a lot of sense to deal with sin to God. Then we have Elijah in 1 Kings 19. He is questioned by God. Ministry has to be open to being questioned. I mean, I suppose it should stand to logical reflection that if the ministry should be open to being questioned by God, then all of us should be open to being questioned by God. But I'm putting the emphasis where it legitimately can be placed, especially when we're looking into a pastoral epistle, in which, I guess I've made the point, this is written personally to Timothy. Not simply because he's Paul's understudy and friend, which he is, but he's Paul's understudy specifically in order to be a faithful minister to God's people. And all these things would apply to Timothy. You follow what I'm saying, that he might be rebuked by Paul, he might be admonished by Paul, he might be questioned by Paul, like Elijah was. So here you'll remember the situation. Elijah is at Mount Sinai, and the Lord says, what are you doing here? And then there's David. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, David was not addressed in the same way directly by God, but he was addressed by God through the prophet Nathan, and he was pointedly accused. Now, this isn't in the flesh, but he was pointedly identified. Someone looked him, I assume, in the eye and said, you are the man. This sin, this problem, you're at the center of it. And one of the questions I have for us, it's not about anything particular. I ask myself this most importantly. The question is, is are we able to be reached in this way? Because if we are not, then we're not within the ambit of the pastoral epistles, and we can't hope to experience the contentment that chapter 6 will speak of, if we're not even open to the array of things that fit into this overall letter. Well, we can use in the New Testament Peter as an example. Peter in Galatians chapter 2 was confronted by Paul. We are told by Paul, and I quote him, I withstood him to the face. When this is a spiritual undertaking. This isn't anything that anyone enjoys. This isn't done at the drop of a hat. This isn't the result of jockeying for position or the battle of personalities. This is in the interest of the health of God's churches. I say churches because I want to emphasize the plurality of local churches, but anyway, it's for the health of God's family, that if necessary, in this case, it's Paul, who's a fellow minister. We could enlarge on all these thoughts, of course, and say he's not one of the original 12. But 
doesn't that speak to the issue I'm talking about? Doesn't that phenomenon have a sub sort of message to it that we're all under the lordship of Jesus Christ? So Paul can come to Peter and he can withstand him to the face and it's represented as something that needed to happen and was ultimately good for the kingdom of God. May our hearts be open to those kind of experiences when they are needed. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul himself was subject to this kind of experience and had to be open to it. Here it is God addressing Paul's life. He, like Joshua, in some sense, is utterly perplexed and utterly grieved by what is happening to the churches at the hands of the Judaizers, this thorn that is in his flesh that he wants to be released from, and he's crying out to God for this to be taken away from him, and God has to calibrate him. God has to counsel him and calibrate him and say, my grace is sufficient for thee. And dear brothers and sisters, it might not always be the case that you get an audible voice from God or a dream or vision that states that sort of thing. We have to be open to other spiritual individuals calibrating our lives and saying to us, you know, just trust in God. Don't try to get in the flesh about this. Just let the Lord work this out. God's grace is sufficient. Be content. Let the Lord walk you through this. Well, we could look at, as I say, every single worthy name in the entire Bible and every one of them had to be open through their entire life, is my point. Not just to a certain place where now I'm in the ministry. Now I'm being sent by the apostle to Ephesus. Now I am one of the twelve apostles, and I've already had my Pentecost experience as Peter did, and gave this remarkable evangelistic sermon in Acts chapter 2. I'm beyond being addressed to the face. No, we have to be open our entire life even if we are pastors, ministers, to being addressed by the Word of God about what we need to think and what we need to do so we can do things more perfectly. Instead of giving you all these lists of names, I think that I will just remind you of Job. Because Job had 42 chapters, virtually, of being addressed by God. And he's a good man. He was the upright man of his generation. And I know I speak a little bit poetically when I state that Job had 42 chapters of being addressed by God with an overall message of Job. You have a remarkable life, but you still need some fine-tuning. You need some humbling. And Job did come into that experience. And James expresses it this way. He says, you have heard of the endurance of Job. And indeed we have. And I'm trying to say to you, that endurance didn't come out of nowhere. That endurance came out of a man who ultimately submitted himself to a voice speaking into an otherwise righteous life and saying, you still need some adjustment. And there was a period of time where he really wasn't as open to it as he ultimately became open to it, you know, and he didn't receive the best ministry either in that whole experience. And we understand all of that. 
but we're not going to dissect, you know, or digress into the, the picture of Job. Suffice it to say that it's not just Timothy, who is a minister, a remarkable minister, who receives a letter from Paul, which from chapter 1 through chapter 6, if you will, I say in quotations, is presuming to tell him how to think, how to order God's church, how to live his own life. And I know it's extreme to think that Timothy would ever do that. Would to God, it would be actually extreme for any of us to do the following. And that is, Timothy didn't take this letter, you know, and uh, in a Joachim type fashion, decide he's just going to rip it up or tuck it away in his saddle and say, I'm going to Ephesus in order to oversee the church. Why would you send me if I don't know what I'm doing? What is this letter? This is, this is an insult that you're addressing me while you tell me to go to Ephesus and then you give me six chapters of instruction. Oh, dear brothers and sisters, these pastoral epistles play an important role and establish an important principle within the Christian book, <laughs> instruction manual, and that is every one of us needs to stay open to learning from Almighty God. I want to establish the context of the sixth chapter just a bit. I'll do so by referring to what's going on in the fifth chapter. Essentially, where we receive, or Timothy actually, of course, receives a series of instructions as it relates to ecclesiastical relationships, relationships within the church. And so these various classes of members is addressed. Elder men, young men, elder women, young women, widows, those that are widows indeed, those that are younger widows, presbyteros, I use that as distinct from elders in general because of a reason you'll see in a moment. And then aspiring ministers, where he says, lay hands suddenly on no man. I'm going to read just a few of these verses to show you what chapter 5 is all about. But you see there, you look out into the church, and there is an array of classes that make up that church. And... It's important that the pastor knows what these various relationships should look like among themselves and how he should relate to each of them. So, for example, in verse 1 of chapter 5, Paul says, Rebuke not an elder. And I think that that can apply both to a man in the ministry, as they would typically be older themselves, Timothy himself wasn't, so it's not always the case, nor was Titus, but typically they would be older. It also relates to just an older brother in the Lord, for he's going to juxtapose women, young women, older women, not so much as relates to ministry, you see, but just women, you see what I'm saying? So rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father. So you have a class of people within the church. How are we going to have Christian contentment? As believers, rebuke not an elder and treat him as a father. That could go a long way to establishing contentment. And the younger men as brethren, not as doormats, not as insignificant, as brethren. The elder women as mothers. Mother's my foot. I'm the pastor around here. 
you're going to show me the kind of deference that manifests that you realize I'm above you spiritually. No, that's not what he says, does it? He says, treat them like mothers. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing dangerous about that. There's nothing, you know, well, this is going to set up a series of relational assumptions that are going to undermine the work of the church. I don't deny that this doesn't solve everything. No one has said that there's one magic solution to everything. We have to walk in the Spirit so we don't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. That's a constant requirement. But here is some of the guidance toward Christian contentment. Treat the elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters with all purity. A very important admonition for all ages. I don't know if our age is more sort of fleshly oriented than previous ages. There's no particular reason to believe that's true. Maybe the proliferation of pornography, which is certainly a modern phenomenon, has its own kind of threat and dynamic to it. So I think that element certainly has to be factored into the analysis here. But uh, if you've ever learned about the Corinthian port or read first or second Corinthians, they weren't exactly chaste in their culture. And so we are to treat the younger, sis- the younger sisters, or excuse me, the younger women as sisters with all purity. And then with respect to widows, I mentioned that category, just this observation. Um, verse 3, you are to honor widows that are widows indeed. Again, we're not here to exegete chapter 5, but we're just giving you a bit of context so that you can kind of feel what's going on here when we get to chapter 6. And the thing that I'm pointing out at this moment is that there are widows among them, and anyone who even approximates the situation of a widow is worthy of our empathy, at least as far as that goes, you know what I mean, as far as being within that category. But I want you to see that Paul, and you can read it for yourself, of course, I'm not going to get into the details here, that Paul makes a distinction between those that are what he calls widows indeed over against younger widows that you would treat differently because they're not in quite the desperate situation that some others are. And it is proper to make these distinctions, which I think establishes a principle that it's proper to make honest and legitimate distinctions among the people within God's church. It's a simple sort of idea, but it sometimes is overlooked, especially in our, you know, sort of woke culture where any version of analytical thought and analysis and hierarchical arrangement within human experience is jettisoned and we pretend that everyone is equally gifted and everyone is in the exact same status and we think that we're raising everybody, but no, we're just lowering everyone to the lowest common denominator, which is, well, let's not call it denominationalism, but it is the lowest common denominator. And I'm showing you that it's proper to make straightforward, honest distinctions and say to, you know, a young sister whose husband passed away, or even an older sister who has family members who can support her, 
you're not going on the church roll. I mean, you wouldn't say it necessarily so bluntly, but you follow what I'm saying. The bottom line is, is no, this is for those that are widows indeed. And then when I use the phrase, or I use the term presbuteros, the Greek term behind elder in verse 17, I do so to distinguish that there's a class within the church of men in ministry. And he says, let the elders, in verse 17 of chapter 5, that rule well, be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. So imagine a situation that is similar to the disposition of Timothy, because here's a man that's coming to Ephesus who is open to instruction from the Apostle apostle Paul. Are Are you thinking this through with me? Here's a man, how he operates when he arrives in Ephesus. He's okay. He lives within the milieu of being instructed. Imagine that. And therefore, he brings that attitude, that air, that environment, however you wish to describe that. His character projects that sort of way. Then we hope, of course, that this isn't the first time we've ever seen such a thing. We hope that this is more or less normal, which it should be. We should be striving together for the faith of the gospel as brothers and sisters in Christ dwelling together in unity, speaking the same thing, humbling ourselves and just working together to forward God's purposes. So imagine if all of that is already there, yet within that context, it is the case that through God's giftings and grace and through the application of faithful stewardship, there are certain elders that rule well and they have giftings to give themselves to the study of the word and the preaching of the word. He says, let them be counted worthy of double honor, which some argue has a monetary implication to it. They might be right, but he says, and especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. Well, I would say to you what happens when you put all this together is you are enhancing the health of God's home. Because if this minister who labors in the word and doctrine is a true servant of Christ, he is not out seeking attention as an objective of all that he does. He isn't seeking financial support as the reason why he's in the ministry. He isn't out fleecing God's sheep. But if the church as an entity has established within it as one of its values that we honor and respect and acknowledge those who serve us in a notable manner and we support that individual, how can that not aid the overall work of God? How can that not work contentment into the church and into our overall lives. And then verse 22, another class of individuals I mentioned earlier were aspiring ministers. And in verse 22 of chapter 5, Timothy is told, lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partakers of other man's sins, keep yourself pure. I would argue, and here, again, I have to forego a full exegetical treatment of this passage. In certain circles, the admonition to lay hands suddenly on no man, well, number one, 
if you actually ask someone what that means, they means that they think it means, I mean, they take it as, they intuit it as, don't let somebody lay hands suddenly on you. I'm not saying the principle is, is not involved in that, but I'm saying the statement is, you don't lay hands suddenly on somebody else. So you have to start somewhere to make sure you're getting the main point before you get the ancillary points. And I don't think he's talking about, don't pray over somebody too quickly. You know? I mean, there's a point to that. That's related. But it's not so much that people are asking for prayer and Paul is saying, you know, don't pray for people too quickly. Make them squirm a little bit first or something, you know. It's good for their faith. That's not what he's saying. It's all in the context of dealing with the various classes. He just has dealt with the elders that rule well. And he's essentially talking about ordination, the laying on of hands to ordain men into the ministry. And he says, don't be partakers of other men's sins. In other words, you put this man into the ministry too quickly, your fingerprints are on it. When we go do the dusting and find out how this all happened, now you can't avoid that entirely. Jesus selected Judas, you know, if you just want to make a point here. And, you know, there's nothing implied in that remark. I'm just making a blunt point. So that's interesting, isn't it, dear brothers and sisters? It means, for example, for contentment in the church, that already established ministry that have shown themselves to be somewhat worthy and spiritual... They have a duty, they have a right, if you will, they are qualified to exercise well-informed choice and selection within the church of Jesus Christ. One might be aspiring to be a minister, but that does not mean that they should be suddenly put into that position. And that's a whole topic in itself, but we'll leave it, we'll leave it there. Well, the reason why I bring all this to your attention in part is because when we get over into chapter 6, deal, uh, the, the beginning of the chapter is still dealing with various categories or classes of members within the church. And so if you look at chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, let's read those two verses. Let as many servants... Duloi, let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and His doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them, because they are brethren, but rather do them service, because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. Now, ultimately, this chapter is going to center on, at least for our study, and I think even legitimately, that is to say there's a true core within this chapter, uh, it's going to center on contentment. And what I'm setting up here is that understanding how these various life situations might be encountered within the church, realizing that the possibility of these various life situations might be encountered and what to do with them, as opposed to pretending they don't exist or never could exist, and there's no scriptural answer to any of these sorts of situations. Well, what I'm saying is, if you ignore all of that, you cannot 
bring contentment to God's church. You may become culturally relevant by the measure of what the world thinks you should be saying and doing and thinking, but you're not actually solving problems in people's lives and addressing real roots that have to be thought about and have to be somehow or other brought by the Word and by the hand of God out of the ground that they're in that is not where they're going to grow well. And, you know, you have to get in there and sort of dig this stuff up and get your hands dirty and figure it all out is, is what I'm saying here. As it relates to this particular class, the last class, actually, that uh, we'll look at uh, today because it's the last class that Paul addresses. And as I'm stating to you, it goes all the way through the fifth chapter and then transitions into the sixth chapter, right? This class... King James translates douloi as servants. That's a little bit generous. Maybe not entirely generous, as I'll show you in a moment. They are slaves. And here again, we are not going to speak at length of what the nature of slavery was in the Roman Empire. I hope I will just satisfy your minds with this little statement about that feature of the Roman Empire related to slavery. Here, the following. In the Roman Empire, people were either slaves or they were free. These two statuses were central to the social and legal fabric of the Roman world. Unlike in recent history, slavery in Rome was not based on race or ethnicity. Anyone could become a slave, and nearly any slave could become free. Consequently, the Roman world was composed of these two groups of people who lived and worked together and were distinguishable by their social status. I give you that remark, and I'm only going to deal so much with this class, because I only have so much that I want to accomplish at this moment. And what I'm saying is, the scriptures and the church must acknowledge whatever life situations people are in. And there was slavery in the Roman Empire. There has been slavery throughout human history. It is arguable that there is more slavery presently than there has been in memorable history. If you haven't looked into the topic of human trafficking, then you wouldn't know how outrageous and how awful and how truly the word slavery fits this category of human experience. And so, while we rejoice that with respect to sort of classic conceptual ideas of slavery, we don't have to deal with that at least not in its overt manifestation among ourselves. But what we should do is we should deal with what is real, what is honest. What Paul is doing here is he's saying, if there are slaves within the church, exhort them, guide them, teach them not to respond to that in any way they might think. Their duty as a Christian 
is to make sure that the name of God in his doctrine is not blasphemed. Everybody has their responsibilities in the church of Jesus Christ. Everybody does. And no one gets special treatment or status. Whether our times likes that or not, that is the nature of how God's work and God's kingdom conducts itself. We do not hide from what your life situation is, but everyone must respond with proper Christian conduct in the face of what their circumstances are. Everyone is to be tasked with adorning God's name, making sure that He is honored, and nothing that we do would bring blasphemy to His work. And indeed, in this case, he even goes on to say, if you have a master who is a believer, then even if this arrangement should ultimately be sorted out in a better way, which Paul was all for. Have you ever read the letter to Philemon? Paul is all for that. But he's saying there is a right way of going about things. And if your master is a believer, then the Christian thing to do is acknowledge at least that much and treat him accordingly. This will begin to lift this situation out of its status of confusion and start to bring about some Christian remedy and order because God is not the author of all this confusion. Not the confusion of the slavery itself, but also not the confusion of the sinful responses and the sinful hands that are trying to sort out man's mess. You see, the fact of the matter is, whether it's a popular way of reflecting on this or not, first of all, historically, slavery has been a part of the history of almost every nation. Certainly many, many nations over time. Does that make it right? No. But it certainly does sort of establish an unfortunate but true baseline. And then we say, what are we going to do about this? And what the Word of God does, it gives us the kind of directions that I just read. That what you do about this is you acknowledge it, just like you acknowledge all the other situations that are unfortunate, like your husband died, oh, so you're a widow. There is the need for us to bring Christian responses to these issues. And I would say that overarching all of this, sin puts our lives in slavery. Isaiah 50 and verse 1, the prophet says in part, Behold, for your iniquities, you have sold yourself. In Romans chapter 7 and in verse 14, Paul says, We know that the law is spiritual. There is freedom in righteousness. But he says, here's the truth of it. I am carnal. I sold myself into sin, and I am enslaved to sin. And if men weren't enslaved to sin, there would be no slavery to start with. Think of the life of John Newton, the great theologian and hymn writer of Amazing Grace. He was once himself a slave trader. He traded slaves. He, he was a ship captain in which he put slaves within the ship, and awful, atrocious things happened. But when this man got saved, 
All of that was immediately removed out of his heart and out of his desires and out of his interests. And he wanted nothing else except to see men find freedom in Christ. And if all of us would turn from the slavery that we have shackled ourselves with and let the Lord Jesus Christ set us free, then we would have a true answer to the things that hurt and harness humanity. So the Christian prescription is a very good prescription because it acknowledges the true classifications of human experience and then it applies the salve, the bomb of Gilead, the true answer that the cross of Christ has so powerfully provided and it alone will indeed set you free. Because if you use a sinful method to respond to whatever troubles you or whatever you think you have an argument for, you know, I want to argue that somehow I'm mistreated in one way or another. If you use a sinful mechanism, attitude, or method to address those issues, then you are just perpetuating the core of all slavery. You are putting yourself in the slavery of sin. Well, now we begin by reading the third verse of 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we're going to be getting right into the content of what we want to think about so that we can be content Christians. Verse 3 reads, If any man teach otherwise, other than what Paul has been encouraging Timothy to do, that we just relayed to you, if any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, and I'm going to allow an ellipsis here, I'm not going to finish how he describes what that individual is actually like, because I want to take the occasion to make the first point. In order for us to be content in our Christian walk, we have to be content with wholesome words. We have to be content to receive wholesome words. Now, in a sense, this is just underscoring everything that has preceded where we are now. Because while we did not deal with all these classes of people in detail, we just manifested to you that the Church of Jesus Christ acknowledges all these life situations and then gives a wholesome prescription for how to fix it. So you're, if, you're, if you're a young widow, or if even you're an older widow, but you have means outside of the church fund, then the wholesome thing to happen in your life is for you to be supported by your own family, or perhaps for you to get married and be supported through that marriage. In other words, those are wholesome words. You have to be open to the wholesomeness of what the church prescribes. If you were a slave in Paul's time, however you got yourself into that situation or were brought into that situation, what Paul is saying is here's some wholesome words. Here's how we're going to bring 
the redeeming power of the message of Jesus Christ and gradually transform all of Europe, one person at a time, in a genuine, true way, without introducing additional or new corrosive features into the human experience. We're not going to set you against one another. We're going to start sorting this out. In order for contentment to come into the church of Jesus Christ over against clashing and class warfare, you have to be content with wholesome words. You have to be open for something that might not be your idea. You see what I'm saying? Wholesome words. The ESV translates the term behind wholesome words with the word sound. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to sound words. This is exactly the same term that is used in Titus chapter 2 and verse 1, where Paul says to Titus, Speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. What we're emphasizing at this moment is Christian contentment is impossible unless God's people embrace the notion that there is such a thing as wholesome words, sound doctrine, whether or not it appeals to you at first hearing or not, when it addresses your life. If you're going to arrive at contentment, you have to understand the category in the reality that there are things that are sound and wholesome, and there are other things, no matter who thought it out, no matter how appealing it might seem to you, to your own taste, it's not sound. It's not wholesome. It's not going to work. How shall we further describe this category of information? Well, Paul himself does it. And look at the effort he goes to to describe this effectively. He says there are wholesome words. Then he says they are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I would like to say that a shorthand for that is it is the teaching of Holy Scripture that constitutes wholesome words. And then he goes on to say, it is doctrine which is according to godliness. The way the Greek construction communicates this idea, it's a very common Greek construction. It's one within which a modifying idea is nested in between the definite article and the noun that is being expressed here Doctrine. So we have kai te katousebion didaskale. And what it breaks down to in a very wooden literalness is the according to godliness doctrine. In other words, it's that kind of thing that it's doctrine and in the, in the center of it, in the, in the heart of it, the purpose of it, what's nested within it is to promote godliness. We have to be open, in other words, brothers and sisters, to the idea that there is counsel, there is advice, there is training and teaching that is predefined as bringing about godliness. It's teaching that's in the interest of godliness. And Paul is saying, make sure that that's happening in this church in order for contentment to emerge. He's going to go on to describe now, as we move into the following verses, a comparison to what we've just advised. And he's essentially going to say that discontentment with wholesome words 
is epistemological greediness. Now, ultimately, we're going to get to the idea that shows us that it is not true that greediness is what promotes godliness. And I am stating that even as Paul addresses himself in the category of teaching and counsel and how we deal with people's lives, he is saying you need to value wholesome words, right? And he's going to go on to say that any who are discontent with this method, they are epistemologically greedy. Let's hear what he has to say about them. Those that don't value wholesome words, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, godly doctrine, he says they're proud, knowing nothing, but doting, or as the New King James has it, obsessed about questions and strifes of words, whereof come envy, strife, railing, evil suspicions, King James surmisings, evil suspicions, perverse disputings, ESV, constant friction of men of corrupt mind or corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. Now, do you see with me that this initial thought of gain is not related to money? It's related to thinking. It's a category of thought that individuals who are not open to wholesome words, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, doctrine that is nested with godly intent, that is within that context that he says that they suppose that gain is godliness. And I'm suggesting to you the first place where they are grabby and they accrue to themselves in an illegitimate and in a, in a hoarding sort of way, in a give me more, give me more, I want more for me sort of way, is in their minds, is in their thoughts. Because he says they know nothing. They have corrupt minds. They're destitute of the truth. But they're still projecting their ideas. They're still wanting others to follow their advice. They're still disagreeing with wholesome words by countering their own opinions. And they don't know anything. They have corrupt minds. They're destitute of the truth. I don't want to have a negative turn in our talk today. And I'm certainly not thinking of anyone here. I assure you that that is true. But I do want to say for its uh, searching value, have you ever met somebody like this? They don't know what they're talking about. They don't even think about whether or not they're under the authority of a predetermined revelation that establishes itself as wholesome, namely the Word of God. And I'm going to say more about this in a moment, but what I'm trying to state here is they don't know what they're talking about. Their minds are not pure in the Word of God. They're confused in the way they think. They're destitute. They're not established and trained in the truth. But they sure want you to respect their opinion. They still want you to think that they are rich in ideas and they 
you know, they pull it out of their pockets. They pull it out of their suitcase. They just have loads and loads of ideas just hoarded up under their bed and under their pillow. And they're sharing it and dispersing it and spending it. And I'm saying that this is epistemological greediness. This is arrogating to yourself wisdom and understanding that we don't have. You might note that arrogating is in the same word family as arrogant. It's a form of arrogance to assume to ourselves we know better than the wholesome words. Why I can't rest on this particular idea indefinitely I suppose maybe I can just lean on some of the further things I will be expressing in a moment, but there's a certain burden within me because it's such a common phenomenon for me to express that even the idea of an entity being self-defined as owning the category of wholesome words on its own and none of us are to trespass that, namely the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, the doctrine that comes from God, even the thought that there is such a thing is not shared very broadly within the human race. And as a result, they are epistemologically greedy. Later in this same Chapter, Paul is going to say, O Timothy, in verse 20, keep that which is committed to thy trust. Avoid profane and vain babbling and oppositions of science falsely so called. The young literal translation has falsely named knowledge. Taste pseudonymo gnosios. It's a very good translation. Do you ever hear, have you ever heard of a pseudonym? That is a false name, isn't it? And that is the Greek term between or, or behind uh, the description of a science falsely so-called. So, so it, is a, it is knowledge that is falsely named. It is not knowledge. And he says, keep yourself away from that. That describes, therefore, that there's something out there that passes as knowledge and understanding, but it isn't wholesome. It is not the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, addressing this issue in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, he says, If any man thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing as he ought to know. Does that not sound like epistemological greediness. He is saying anyone who thinks that on their own two feet, they know the right idea. They know how to work through this problem. They have the solution. They've got the counsel. Anyone who thinks that they have that without first going to the river of living water and filling their vessel with a source outside of them, namely from the Word of God, he says they know nothing as they ought to know. And yet, many people fit that category. I am saying that if you're not content 
with wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, then you think gain is godliness. You think that if you just multiply your thoughts and your ideas and you just give us your opinion and we just jabber about this on and on again, you'll, you know, you'll be giving us something godly, some new thing, some new idea. I just need to write a book about it. I need to teach on this subject. I'll solve everybody's problem. It's epistemological greediness. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul says there are such things that have a show of wisdom. They have an appearance of wisdom, but they're not truly wise. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18 through 20, Paul says, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seems to be wise in this world, on your own two feet, without speaking from the word of God, let him become a fool. Let him become impoverished as it relates to the claim of wisdom. Not gain more ideas. Let him cash in all of his thoughts. Let him sell all of his supposed wisdom. Let him become a fool that he might be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he taketh the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain. The violation of contentment with wholesome words and putting in that category our own thoughts, our own ideas, thinking that we know when we don't, this is a major, major contributing factor to a lack of contentment. I trust you're hearing what I'm saying. I'm saying what I'm calling epistemological greediness, arrogating to ourselves wisdom that we don't have, brings all kinds of troubles. This is the root of denominationalism and all the divisions that are among us. It's epistemological greediness. It's the claim that we know when we don't know. So in this direction, I must give you a few quotations from one of my mentors, humanly speaking, in this sort of reflection and orientation. These statements are from a Dutch theologian born in a dairy farm, ultimately teaching in Westminster Theological Seminary, commensurate with the founding of it in 1929 by J. Gresham Machen in Glenside, Pennsylvania, one Cornelius Van Til, and I have just a few quotes. There are numerous quotations from him that address this sort of idea, and he has, of course, many students, if you will, that also have much sound thinking along these lines. But allow me to read a few things to you from Cornelius Van Til. I start first with this quotation from his book, The Defense of the Faith, which I have behind me, but I'm not going to pull it out of my briefcase. When man fell, it was therefore his attempt to do without God in every respect. Man sought his ideals of truth, goodness, and beauty somewhere beyond God, either directly within himself or in the universe about him. The result for man was that he made for himself a false ideal of knowledge. 
Man made for himself the ideal of absolute comprehension in knowledge. Fully rich in understanding. It's epistemological greediness. And you will never be content when you strive and you feel like this gain is going to produce godliness in me. No, you have to humble yourself and sell off your ideas in order to truly get the riches of true understanding. In another place, Van Til says, human knowledge is analogical of divine knowledge. It is not original. It's analogical. We think God's thoughts after him. That alone is true understanding. Human knowledge is analogical of divine knowledge. We cannot avoid coming to a clear-cut decision with respect to the question as to whose knowledge, man or God's, shall be made the standard of the other. The one must be original and the other analogical of the original. You have to decide who is going to run the thinking project. You or God? And when you're a creature, by definition, you are dependent upon the Creator. Scott Oliphant, in a footnote to the quotation I just read, states the following, The notion of analogy was meant to communicate the ontological and epistemological difference between God and man. There's an ontological difference between God and man. God is self-sufficient. He is original. We are derived and dependent. That translates into the epistemological project. We are dependent for true knowledge, and we can only get that like we get everything, including life itself, only to the extent that God gives it to us. We cannot do the thinking game all on our own. And God has gone to the extent of giving us an entire book filled with His words, His wisdom, wholesome words, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, doctrine that is according to godliness. And whenever we take up this book, we read a certain passage and we say, no, I think I've got a better idea. You are proud knowing nothing, doting about and bringing up arguments and strifes within the church of God. You have a corrupt mind. You're destitute of the truth. And this will not engender contentment within the house of God. One final quotation from Van Til. This out of A Christian Theory of Knowledge, the first of Van Til's books that I read extensively, or I should say that I read from cover to cover and very carefully. Prior to that, I had read his preface to Warfield's book, on the inspiration and authority of Scripture, at least the edition that included the preface of Van Til. There are other editions of Warfield's works that does not have Van Til's preface. But uh, this quotation from A Christian Theory of Knowledge is as follows. Before seeking to prove that Christianity is in accord with reason and in accord with the facts, which in many construals of the apologetic endeavor, what they're trying to do is they're trying to harmonize the Christian faith within the category of facts. 
They're assuming a category that everybody agrees on called facts, and they're trying to manifest that the Christian faith has its own claim within this category of facts. And to the extent that somebody doesn't believe that, they just need to be talked to and better informed so that they will see that indeed the Christian faith is worthy of the category of fact. Well, there's a fundamental problem to that entire approach, which is as follows. I continue to quote Van Til. Before seeking to prove that Christianity is in accord with reason and in accord with fact, it would ask what is meant by reason and what is meant by fact. It would argue that unless reason and fact are themselves interpreted in terms of God, they are unintelligible. If God is not presupposed, reason is a pure abstraction. What is reason? How do you describe reason? How do you constitute it? Who controls this space called reason? How did it get there? How do you know if this reason itself is the proper kind of reason? Does something above it control the definition of reason? Do you have an infinite redress in this whole category? So you necessarily have to wind up with a postmodern position of absolute relativism, which of course is a contradiction itself. Absolute relativism? Anyway, I can't digress into all these things. Reason is a pure abstraction if it isn't presupposed in God, that has no contact with fact, and fact is a pure abstraction that has no contact with reason. Reason and fact cannot be brought into fruitful union with one another except under the presupposition of the existence of God and His control over the universe. Those are some strong remarks on this first idea that in a positive way, in order to arrive at Christian contentment, we need to be content with God's wholesome words that are revealed, that are given to us, that are not subject to your independent judgment. As C.S. Lewis would say, God is not in the dock, meaning that God is on trial and we stand in the judge's seat and God has to acquit himself well, rationally, in order to pass the uh, accusation that perhaps you are irrational, God. God is not in the dock. We are. Christian contentment cannot be arrived at if we are epistemologically greedy.